What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. So welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got the one and only time-traveling, futuristic individual. His name is Dr. Eric Helms. If you don't know who this guy is, you probably don't train or are in this. I don't know. You probably are just doing it completely wrong. And I feel like I say this sometimes, but you are definitely doing it wrong if you don't know how to power lift, lift, nutrition, anything like that. Um, so Dr. Helms, for those individuals that have no idea who you are, enlighten them, please. Well, it is uh, beautiful here in New Zealand on Saturday in the future. And uh, thank you for having me. And I would say that if someone hasn't heard of me, it doesn't mean they necessarily don't even lift. But I would like to think that once they now have heard of me after I introduce myself, that they will lift better. So with that, um, huge honor and all seriousness, pleasure to be on. Uh, my name is Eric, uh, also known as Dr. Helms, if uh, I'm feeling pretentious. And I'm just someone who has been lifting for a long time and got way too invested and decided, you know what, I only need one basket for all my eggs because pretty much all I do is put out content related to lifting, uh, research lifting, uh, help other people research lifting, write about lifting, and do videos on lifting. And occasionally, like you're seeing or hearing right now, doing podcasts on lifting. So yeah, I compete in natural bodybuilding, powerlifting, other strength sports occasionally. I do all of them pretty mediocrely, but I love it. And I'm here to help others who love it do better too. So do you do anything besides fitness related stuff? No, that's, uh, that, that's, that's way too, like, I mean, I don't Why know how do to that? step outside of that. Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> well, like, I actually don't understand the question. So, <laughs> so, uh, um, I guess let's get right into it. The bulk of the information, the good stuff. What, uh, when dieting, I guess for different, uh, different focuses, how would you take that approach depending on the client? So I guess there's different phases. You could sort of touch on each of those. And if they're different between each general pop, bodybuilder, powerlifter, athlete, et cetera. So are you referring specifically to the focus of the phase in terms of the goal or whether in a surplus or deficit? Yeah. Uh, like a little more, a little more context on that question would be helpful. So when it, when it comes to dieting um, and trying to accomplish a weight goal, is calories in, calories out the only thing that you like to follow? Do you take a hormonal approach first? Do you look at just uh, maybe habits that will impact the individual hormonally? Um, what initial approach would you take? Yeah, hormones are definitely not a consideration, and I wouldn't recommend that they be the consideration of most. You know, we're, we're not endocrinologists. Most of us are trainers, even those of us who do have advanced degrees. Uh, are also still not endocrinologists because we don't have an endocrinology degree, which makes you an endocrinologist. So uh, it doesn't just come down on the other end of the spectrum. It doesn't just come down to uh, calories and calories out. However, we have a lot of good data to suggest uh, that your macronutrient distribution can affect uh, the, the quality of your, your gains, even though energy balance is what dictates changes in mass. Um, you want more of that mass to be fat-free mass and less of that mass to be fat mass if that is one's goal or if you want to enhance strength 
uh, we know that uh, higher protein intakes and a sufficient carbohydrate and fat intake relative to your goals and the training volume is very important. Um, so with that said, whether one focuses on actually quantifying those macros or whether someone focuses on habits that will result in a better macronutrient distribution um, is very much dependent on the individual, their experience, their goals, and uh, their lifestyle in many ways. So both should be on the table, in my opinion, um, for someone who is, let's say, not just a hugely crazy, dedicated, like competitive athlete, um, you kind of look for the easiest entry point that's going to improve the lowest hanging fruit. You know, if someone is starting off and knows literally nothing about nutrition, uh, simply getting some basic education and helping them become more conscious of an eater and understand what they're putting in their bodies and the ways they can make subtle manipulations to increase their protein intake, increase their vegetable and, and fruit intake, uh, and become more active will pay a huge multitude of benefits. However, if I'm coaching a competitive bodybuilder, uh, then we're probably going to be taking a very different approach because that baseline will be starting much higher. So we may be doing things like manipulate nutrient timing uh, or doing things like uh, changing their macronutrient split or things like that for sure. So yeah, uh, essentially it, it really is very much goal specific. If we're going to be talking about, uh, since this is all the smoke on, on, on lifting uh, for both physique and strength, if the average person who's reading my content is probably interested in getting huge and getting very strong. And I commend them for that. Um, and uh, it's one of the most noble goals. So they're probably going to go through phases of being in a calorie surplus because we do know uh, that that calorie surplus, while it's not required to build muscle, it certainly aids that process. Um, and there's a certain point in certain cases where it probably is required. Like if you are shredded and just competed in a show, you're probably not going to be able to make uh, gains in maintenance. So anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent, but you're going to go through phases of being in a surplus. And unless you are just God's gift to genetics and you have perfect insight onto what your uh, cal calorie expenditure is and your calorie intake, you're probably going to gain some body fat in the process of being in a calorie surplus, especially as you get a little more advanced and you plateau, you can't gain muscle at the same rate. Um, so as you find that you go through these same efforts of quote unquote bulking, it becomes a little less lean over time. You gain fat with your muscle mass and you have to do things like adjust the pace and the rate. So, uh, that means that you might eventually have to do like a cleanup phase or like a cut of some type. Uh, and if you're actually competing, then you probably will do an extended cut to get ultra super shreddy so that you can get on stage. Um, so there's going to be these, these phases of surplus deficit and maintenance. And I think generally, um, when it comes to bodybuilding, you want to emphasize building and you want to spend the vast majority of your career. If the goal is to get as big as possible, um, probably not in a deficit, um, because that's, that's relatively counterproductive to that goal. Um, I know that's a challenge for many considering Instagram tells us all to be diced all the time. Um, but, uh, I think that is ultimately what's needed. So, Essentially, the way I like to, 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 to frame it is you want to spend as much of your time in a good environment for building muscle, um, having the energy to support that. And then as needed, you need to spend time points to clean up the level of body fat accrual that, that you need to based on your, your comfort level, health, personal preferences. And again, I'll say health again, because some people's personal preferences are to be so lean that it is not healthy. I'm not just talking about getting too high in body fat for probably most of the audience that you guys have. So some practical recommendations um, as did some decent, totally pulled out of my butt 
uh, anecdotal suggestions are that you want to spend at least four times the amount in a surplus um, that you spend in a deficit kind of over overall it's at least so that means if you used to spend four months cutting sorry four months in a gaining phase you earned yourself a, a month mini cut to clean up but that would be the, the earliest point i would do that um, and in general if you can get away with with more or a, a better ratio that's probably superior so this sort of had me come up with a question itself that i was already thinking of a question uh the four to one ratio the four to one ratio, is that sort of something you look at to prepare someone to, to get on stage or what signify, signals that someone is ready to go into a cut that's going to get them that lean? Because, I mean, we get it all the time where people just are d- chronic dieting all the time. They're not, their metabolism is not high enough and they've built up a little bit too much body fat where if they were to go into a cut right now, they're not going to be able to get down. They're like, it's not possible. Is that one reason why you focus on the four to one or what uh, experience do you have that has led you to that? That's part of it. So what you're basically describing is someone who's had chronic low energy availability. They're experiencing the symptoms of REDS, relative energy deficiency syndrome, uh, they've, which, which comes with some degree of quote unquote metabolic adaptation or just down regulation and energy expenditure. Essentially, they burn less calories than you'd predict at their body weight. So if they then want to cut further, you have to put them on to even lower calories. And it may be possible, but it'll be possible at the cost of not having a menstrual cycle for perhaps years in some cases, which we've observed in, in case studies. Uh, it could come at the cost of losing substantial lean body mass. It could come at the cost of having nutrient deficiencies. And it could come at the cost of at least your sanity temporarily um, uh, and, and not having a healthy relationship with your body or food. So we want to avoid that. Um, and uh, so that is definitely part of it, uh, to answer your question. Another part of it is that when you give someone kind of these, these ratios, um, it's a, it makes them filter into more appropriate surpluses. You know, so like if someone is just going on the Uber mega bulk and they try to do that four to one ratio, the cuts are never going to be sufficient to clean them up. And they're going to realize that they're being too aggressive during these bulking phases. You know, if you put on 10 pounds a month for four months, you gain 40 pounds. What are you going to do in a month about that? Um, probably not enough to, to clean up that body fat. Um, so I think it, it's a, it, it helps people give some limits on things and go, right, well, I, a, obviously I'm not always cutting. There's a four to one ratio that's not in the favor of cutting. So that will prevent the chronic dieters from chronically dieting. Um, B, it prevents the, uh, the dreamer bulkers from having their dreams get a little too out of hand. And it's, it's a nice kind of way of filtering both people towards a more moderate approach. Um, and I think like a good way to look at it is there's, there's probably some approaches that are equivalent in terms of whether you want to gain, let's say, 10 pounds over the course of four months or 10 pounds over the course of eight months. I don't know that one of those is better than the other. Uh, one will require a longer or more frequent cutting phase than the other, but ultimately they're probably pretty similar. But at the extreme ends at a certain point, we can see that you start to get a disadvantageous ratio of fat mass gain to lean mass, right? That example of I gained 10 pounds a month for four months we know that at best, you're probably gaining one to two pounds of muscle each one of those months. So the, the ratio is hugely skewed and it forces you into this prolonged deficit to clean up uh, that, that decision. So 
Yeah, it's uh, it, it one just kind of emphasizes the philosophy that we should be spending most of our time trying to build the muscle that we would then want to display at some point in the future with the cut rather than I always need to be in this kind of dieted state to, to display it. Uh, two, it does prevent some of those uh, low chronic low energy availability issues. Um, and then three, for people who are a little too aggressive in gaining, it brings them back down to a more reasonable rate kind of as a as a side effect of, of, of looking at those timelines and figuring them out and what kind of surplus and deficit you need to be in. Now, how are you walking through, I guess, through individuals? Because something that I've kind of started experiencing now recently is, right, it's summertime. Everyone wants to, hey, I need to cut, cut 10 pounds. I need to get super shredded. But then we do a baseline week and it's like, whoa, my friend, you're at 1,200 calories. You're doing how much cardio and doing all that. Like you said, we have these chronically low individuals that has incredibly high output, but they're coming to you for fat loss. How are you trying to portray that message? Hey, we can't do this or short term. Sure. It might happen, but probably not. But long term, like you said, there's going to be so, so many more negative downfalls to it. How are you, I guess, framing that to either, you know, a gen pop individual um, or somebody that is trying to put themselves in a best situation to step on stage or step on the platform? To be honest, it's easier if someone's trying to step on stage or step on the platform, because then the best way to talk to an athlete, even when you are concerned about their health, is not to get your foot in the door by talking about health. It's to talk about performance, because um, then you can actually get them to listen, and then they'll do things that might be better for their health. Because some people will be like, hey, extreme sports diverge from health, like they're unhealthy. But you still have to be alive to compete. Um, you still have to, like, you can't have a broken hip and, and compete in a powerlifting meet. You know, you can't have like super low bone mineral density for long without hurting yourself. So there is only a point at which health and performance diverge and only to so much, which I think is kind of the misnomer that people have when they act like sport and health are, are, are like extreme counter examples. You know, most people who want to compete in powerlifting or bodybuilding don't want to just do it twice and then burn out. Um, so sometimes, so, so the conversation starter for someone getting on stage with the platform is basically, Hey, um, you're not going to be able to build muscle or strength in this way. And you're not going to improve at best. You could compete annually every year. And we kind of stay in this kind of semi shredded state all the time or really shredded and kill ourselves to get there, but you're not going to improve year to year. Um, and most likely you're not going to make it very long in the sport. And something, you know, that, that I basically ask them is, well, do, do you, do you enjoy the sport? Most of the time, the answer is yes. And I said, well, do you want to keep enjoying the sport? How long do you want to compete? Do you see yourself competing in five years, 10 years? And a lot of times the answer in my experience is, oh, I haven't really thought about that. Um, and then when they do, it's, it's a great opportunity to give them opportunity to think about it. So I think reframing their perspective from being more short-term to long-term focused uh, really kind of opens the door to some of those new possibilities. And that's kind of the art of coaching physique athletes and strength and athletes in general is that um, they're highly, highly focused, very, very motivated and willing to push themselves to extremes. But you kind of have to get them to think about like beyond the next oil change, you know, like let's, let's actually have a car that, that is serviceable long-term. Um, and how do we, how do we improve for the long run? How, so, okay, you want your pro card, but you're going to crush yourself to get it. How does that pro debut look after that? You know, um, you, you know, have had three back injuries to deadlift 500 pounds, but your goal is to deadlift 700. How do you plan to get there? Um, so that that's kind of the conversation starter for the general population though. Um, it requires maybe a little less of a direct approach. Um, 
I don't have a ton of experience here, but I have sufficient experience. I think I can provide a helpful answer. Um, it really comes down to helping them understand what their motivations are. Um, so some like motivational interviewing ask technique techniques where you're you're asking them questions because um, it, it when someone comes to you and they're doing something that is not helpful to their long term goals and you know that as a coach just simply telling them that's not helpful to your long term goals you shouldn't do it will often fall upon deaf ears because you don't know why they're doing that what beliefs they have uh, what they've been told um, and what their fears are and what their goals are so. Uh, you have to figure that out. And in that process, they might actually figure it out to a greater extent or redefine it. Um, and if they've come to you, ostensibly, they are at least somewhat open to your experience, perspectives, and suggestions. So you can leverage your expertise to help you know, provide some context and understanding and education around what is reasonable, what's what could happen, and you know, what these pathways will lead to if we go down them to help them figure out their options. So a lot of it just comes down to as a coach, you need to respect your client and uh, understand that the difference in most cases between you and them is just an asymmetry of knowledge. So if they knew what you, what you knew, and if they weren't as maybe paralyzed by their fears or false beliefs or misinformation, that they might make a similar decision to you. And if they did have all the same information and knowledge that you had, didn't have any of their fears, they would actually be a better coach for themselves than you are because they know themselves better than you. So the goal is to kind of reduce that knowledge asymmetry to help get them uh, reframe some of their fears and, and, and lack, of, uh, lack of perspective uh, that, that you might be able to have with your experience and knowledge and then work collaborative, collaboratively with them to, to set up a plan that, that is more in line with that. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a conversation that you're probably going to get done, sorted and get them on board in like a one hour Skype call in most cases. Uh, you might be nudging them towards something that's a better approach and bargaining with them. And sometimes they might logically understand what you say, like, okay, this, these are too low of calories. Uh, this has failed before. Um, but I'm really afraid of that. And I'm really urgently want, want change now, but okay, well, I'll try 1600 calories or something like that. And you may actually want them on, on 1800 or not even cutting at all at this time point. Um, but uh, you're, you can kind of keep having those conversations until they get to a point where they're finding something that will be more effective over time. So it's, it's certainly a, a process. Um, and it ultimately does come down to helping them understand what their whys are and motivations and what their lack of knowledge is so you can help them form a better plan. I think you hit it on the head. That educational piece is key. And it seems through ACSM, NSCA, or whatever general recommendations, I feel like those aren't good enough, but we see them. And sometimes people can go to super extremes. Like, well, I'm going to kill that 160 minutes in that one single bout. And hey, now I can chill for the rest of the week. Or you have these other ones. It's like, okay, I can space this out and it is what it is type of deal. Um, but as you think, you like, there's so many individuals that they're just lost with all the misinformation. And I always have this thing with exercise science and nutrition. These are fields that I feel like we can never agree on anything. And if you're on that side, it's like, screw you. I can't talk to you. And instead of just having this mutual agreement or just conversation of like, okay, how, how and why do you see it that way? And this is why and how I see it this way. Then we can kind of, again, meet in the middle and Again, I feel like some people just forget about, about that person in the middle, which is that client and who actually wants and needs our services to get to wherever they want to be. 
Uh, but you know, your, your experience, I always found crazy because you've done strongman, you've done powerlifting, you've done weightlifting, you've done bodybuilding, you've done everything. How is that process in itself taught you what is, you know, feasible, maintainable for the long term? What are like, I guess the top three things you wish you would have known and could have told yourself when you first started your journey? No, that, I love the way you frame that. Um, like we all are in these silos and the general pop is what's caught between our siloed yelling across the aisle. And I think the main benefit I've had in training with strong men and women, uh, you know, being in a weightlifting gym and training there for multiple years, uh, training in powerlifting gyms and training in bodybuilding circles and being in academia and also having been a personal trainer is that I have been embedded in all of these different perspectives and, and I've seen how things that are actually quite close together, because we're not talking about an endurance sport and like, like vegan cyclists and then like yoga people who only eat bananas or something like, like there's a big, wide, crazy world of, of niches out there in the fitness industry. And I'm that all of the things that I've done are sitting in a small pocket of like, we like to lift. Some people are like, but I like to lift stones. I'm like, I like to, like to lift over my head and I like to pick it off the ground. But like, okay, it's all pretty similar, right? So even within these little uh, closely orbiting satellites of general lifting that are their own niches and communities, I have seen some very disparate beliefs and things that can be either helpful or hindering. So for example, when I got into bodybuilding, it was very unpopular, the idea of training with any kind of high frequency. And, um, Olympic lifters at a certain stage in their career, if they're good are training 10 days a week and every movement they do is some variation of a squat or a deadlift. Um, so, you know, when someone goes, Hey, if I trim my biceps twice this week, is that overtraining an Olympic lifter will just look at you and be like, how are you so fragile? You know, like that's their, that's their immediate thought. Like, why haven't you just died like walking around outside and, 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 and passed out from, from like standing up too fast or, and the bodybuilder goes like, do it during constant prep. But, um, but anyway, the, the, the perspective there, it's so divergent and, um, the perspectives on, on all these things differ so greatly. So I've, the benefit I've had is that I've seen how many things actually do work. Um, and how broad of, of, of your options can be. Um, so I think that's a huge benefit to working in, in those multiple sectors. And I think some of the things that I've learned are to be open-minded, um, to be experimental, um, and then to listen. Th those are all three huge things that I've learned from being in these communities because I've gotten to be a beginner in some of them and others I have you know, become somewhat of a leader eventually. So having been able to try to point out those differences to people and also my interest in history seeing that even within these communities, things have greatly changed over time. Uh, that's also been helpful to me. So um, like I said, when I got into lifting and, and bodybuilding, you know, two times a week frequency was considered high frequency. It's changed a little bit in the last say 10 years or so. Um, but man, there was a time from the, like the eighties until the mid two thousands where pretty much it was just a, an expectation that you're going to be on a body part split. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. Obviously it's worked, but if you were to go back into the 1940s and 50s, pretty much everybody was on an upper, lower, or full body split. So to see it having flipped so much, it makes you wonder why and what's changed and what things have gotten involved. And, um, you know, 
as a total aside, it's probably the influence of anabolic steroids, the creation of machines, which didn't exist and the promotion of them and Nautilus and things like that. Um, but, but nonetheless, some of them are, are just really eye-opening and they can, they can give you more potential solutions to problems that come your way as a coach or just for yourself as an athlete. Um, so some of the things that, that have, that I've actively, um, looked at and think, you know, I'm really glad I learned this or saw that was taking an approach of doing a sufficient amount to make progress rather than trying to chase after the most progress I can make in any given unit of time, uh, which you can only know one of those. You can't really know what's the most amount of progress you can make because you can always convince yourself there's more, but if you're making measurable progress, you're making measurable progress. If you're not, you are not. So you can, you can see when you're making progress and then to be relatively uh, conservative in that approach and just be like, okay, like I'm not going to have the grass is greener kind of mentality um, because it's very easy to take it a little too far. And then you don't know until you have uh, getting injured, getting burned out, things like that. Uh, for, for me, I think I probably could have avoided a few injuries had I taken that approach earlier in my career. Um, and it also allows you to make better diagnostic choices when you're doing a sufficient amount to make progress, but not the most you possibly can, as there's less moving parts to your program. Your volume, general volume is probably going to be a little bit lower, for example. So when you do add something else, um, it's, you know, you've, you're not like taking the shotgun approach already. And it's just one other variable in, in the noise of all those pellets hitting the wall. You don't know whether it mattered or not. Like, how can you evaluate whether a, like a high cable row is working effectively to build your back when you're also doing face pulls, two different hammer strength rows, um, barbell rows to the chest, pendulum rows, and some inverted lat pull downs all in the same week. Like which one of them is, is, is the best movement for you? You have no idea. Um, if you were just doing a couple and you added it in, you started to see significant growth after say three or four months. Now you found, oh, that's a really good movement for me. And that's something I'm going to build my program around rather than going, how about I do all the back movements, you know? So uh, anyway, just a random example, but uh, that, that's, those are all some of the lessons I've learned just to be more open-minded, um, to develop more tools for me exposed to different methods and to take a more, I wouldn't say a minimalist approach. I'm still within like the realm of what we think is probably optimal, but on the lower end of that range for as far as how much work I'm doing and what kind of progress I'm chasing so I can make better changes and have more sustainability. I think one thing that I want to capture is like not doing fucking everything and it's like a lot of you know gem pop and even some people that just kind of get in is like well coach like what about this movement what about this movement? what about this movement i was like how about we just master these three basic movements to get really good at these and then we can start doing that but it's like well i saw this on instagram and he says that's the best thing to do if i want to increase my deadlift by 100 pounds it's like listen if you want to get better at the deadlift we need to work on the actual deadlift rather than doing all of these banded barbell or whatever it may be but let's just hone in on that technique and just build that foundation, first of all. Um, but something else that you said is, right, hitting that minimal dose and not overexerting yourself. Because when you start overexerting yourself, right, that burnout happens. And then you just kind of become that sedentary rock and that doesn't do anything. And then you decondition yourself. And now we have to, you know, get back to their baseline and even work even harder. And it comes just that vicious cycle. But understand that, right something's always better than nothing. And just always, and I, I always steal the analogy that you, you use. I don't remember what podcast you were on, but it was like, if I walk into a car dealership and you say, Hey, I want this APR, I want to put nothing down, but then you are challenged. It's like, no, this is your APR and you have to put X amount of down. 
for some reason, right, us as individuals be like, no, nah, you're crazy. I'm not doing that. But for whatever exercise and nutrition is, if, hey, you got to do this, this, and this. And also, by the same time, hey, I don't want you to sleep and do all that. For whatever reason, we will do that. But for whatever reason, on the end of the spectrum, when it comes to managing money, we won't do that. And I think that's where we kind of have to bridge the gap of making relatable to that client, as you said, so they understand. But the thing that I always found interesting with you, if you've done fucking damn near everything and i've just kind of been a basketball player my whole life and now transitioned to powerlifting the past you know five six years and i've He's really trying to that. yeah I, i'm a washed up hooper <laughs> want to be powerlifter so but one of the things too that i always want to pick your brain about is you know periodization programming and how we kind of define these because i don't know if you've seen the recent paper out of the muscle lab that we were so we saw like 100 plus definitions of periodization do you believe we've actually studied periodization or have we just kind of studied different programs? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a great framing. There is, you know, periodization is, and again, there's many definitions, but what most people would agree is that is the manipulation of training variables in periods of training. So I, I, if you dispute that broad definition, you're disputing the word in my opinion. So it generally has to do with longer timeframes then we arguably spend most of our time in an exercise science. Like the eight week study is probably, what do you guys think? 70% of the, the training studies are out there eight weeks, right? It's like the, the most, the most time you can handle you before. See, I was going to see if you see yeah. a 12 or a 16 week study, you are celebrating like crazy. Yeah. You did a really good job on your recruitment. Um, you probably had to work across more than one semester. Um, Definitely and- wasn't during COVID. <laughs> No, no, no. All that got done during COVID was systematic reviews and, 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 and studies that started as an eight-week training study and became a four-week case series. <laughs> so, yeah, um, absolutely. So the, the reality is, is that we simply, no one can say that they've studied periodization in most cases. Maybe not no one. There are the odd six-month study, two-year study, um, or at least they haven't studied it with a true randomized controlled trial. Like they haven't gone, you know what, we're going to this Olympic cycle, we're going to take half of the US team and we're going to put them on a block periodized model. We're going to take the other half and we're going to put them on the DUP and we're going to see who, who, who does better at the Olympics and who, who tests better along the whole way. That's never happened. That's never going to happen. Um, so a lot of what we understand about periodization is more arguably about programming. It is the manipulation of training variables within mesocycles, which are generally somewhere between you know three to eight weeks long, right? So we've got some some general understandings and we have principles, and I think that's not it's not to say like I think some people have then gone with that and gone. So therefore, we know nothing about periodization. That's pseudoscience, you know. I don't think that's true. I think um, a, a definition of periodization I like is from that actually Dr. Zerdos introduced me to. Um, it's in Buford, 2007, and the paraphrase is essentially um, periodization is the manipulation of training variables to improve performance and avoid the onset of overtraining. And everyone can get behind that. Even people who have more extensive definitions, who have a time component or you know to peak performance at a specific time point, it's still all is contained within that definition. Like everyone is is manipulating training variables, and they're doing it to not get injured or burned out and, and be better, right? So. I think given that we have that definition uh, that everyone should be able to agree on and at least say, well, it doesn't go far enough, but it is still accurate. Uh, and given most of our data is on these, you know, four to 12 week periods, 
then we probably need to have a more bottom-up kind of emergent approach that starts with what we have and doesn't over-extrapolate on what we don't have. doesn't assume something that we observe over eight weeks applies to 24 weeks or 36 weeks or four years or something like that. Um, and then we also work with the pragmatic logistics of what we're dealing with. So, you know, you mentioned powerlifting. Let's say you've got your regional competition in, in May and you've got nationals you're trying to qualify for in October generally. And then if you are a uh, good enough competitor, that might result in competing in an international competition mid next year, while you're also trying to balance regionals and nationals again. So you're looking at three comps a year in most cases, right? Um, work backwards from there. You know, you generate your mesocycles to get you to that point and make sure that you don't absolutely crush yourself to do amazingly well at regionals, qualify for nationals, and then spend the rest of the year just trying to get your hip not feeling like crap, you know? So how do we, you know, Dan John, who's someone I really look up to, says that after every peak, there's a cliff, right? Um, so, you know, if you do the things you, you need to do to get to your peak performance, that comes with associated risks um, in terms of uh, potential burnout psychologically or physically injury, you know? So you have to then build a periodization plan that will get you to reach those, those uh, benchmarks you need. Like, okay, what's the national qualifier? Um, and if, am, I, am I reasonably close to that? Okay, then this regional meet, we need to try to peak for that. How much recovery time am I going to need to then turn it around to get to the next one? And okay, sweet. Then now I'm going to be going into, uh, into worlds. What does that timeline look like? So that's very different than what, say, a basketball player has to do who's playing games with much greater frequency, you know, and they have to balance multiple domains of fitness. They have to have aerobic fitness, anaerobic fitness. They have to be explosive. They have to have endurance uh, and they have to practice skills all at the same time. And they're not just moving in the sagittal plane. They have to move laterally. They have to rotate. Um, they have to switch from offense to defense. There's, there's a ton going on there. So periodization is essentially a requirement for a team sport athlete. Um, and these, and, and even though the coaches who don't think about periodization a lot, they are periodizing it. Like they have time points where they focus more on skills versus fitness. And it has to do with when does the competition season start? Um, and the, the debates about whether or not periodization is something we need to focus on or do or not um, in the, in the lifting world are very siloed, like, like most things, of course, like, um, like e even if you were to say, look, all, all you need to do is practice specificity, lift heavy. If you want to be stronger, do volume. If you want hypertrophy, as soon as you start wanting multiple things, it starts to look like periodization. Like what if you're someone who wants to be big and strong, and you also want to be explosive and you want to have endurance. Let's call that American football. Then even if you like, right, like your body mass is, is probably the biggest factor, not, not your bench press on whether you can knock somebody over. So you need hypertrophy, even if you're someone who has a very myopic view and thinks hypertrophy and strength are disconnected. So you have to train for hypertrophy. You got to do volume. Okay. But I do want to be stronger. So I've got to train for strength. They need to be powerful, but I also need to not get tired. I need to play in the fourth quarter. So I'm going to do aerobic training, anaerobic training, skills, agility training, strength, and hypertrophy. Well, when am I going to do that? Well, I can't do it all at the same time. So I probably need to mix it up into phases. Okay. Well, I don't want those skills to detrain. So it means I need to keep a little bit of some of them in the phases for the others. And what have we just described? We've described block periodization, right? So essentially, um, 
the more complex the athlete, the more you're going to see that periodization is a requirement. Um, but I, what I don't think is helpful for periodization is, is the dogmatic practices uh, and, and writings that often go into it. People who say like, and by the way, strength is three by five. And by the way, hypertrophy is five by 10. And by the way, it needs to last six weeks. And by the way, this is exactly what your taper needs to look like. And by the way, I don't agree with that definition. It's not linear. You need to call it this, you know? So I think um, for something that is only been studied in the short to midterm, for something that has not been studied very much at all, for something that has to deal with the individual athletes needs positions weaknesses injury history um, competition schedule a rigid approach to periodization is the like the antichrist to what you need to be doing it needs to be very agile it needs to be very flexible and it needs to take into account all these things so it, it, it almost by definition in my opinion a good periodization plan has to be very reactive which is why i'm interested in studying auto regulation but um but yeah so, so with before, terms of auto-regulation, my bad, Chris, but this is getting juicy, so I got to talk. So, <laughs> um, All right. Watch with auto-regulation, right? I feel like that obviously is what we're, a lot of people are doing right now. And there's, I think you were a part of that one study where it was com comparing, you know, linear versus velocity-based, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm right or wrong. Um, but that one was, I think, you know, I, I'm in the opinion of velocity-based training in some way, either it be, you know, via phone, via attendo unit, whatever it may be, gym wear, I feel like that is going to be the training of the future. And I think auto-regulation, how I try to educate my clients is, Hey, we max you out a month ago. You're going to hopefully get stronger throughout a period or right. Maybe you walk into a gym and you feel like complete shit and whatever I prescribe is going to kill you or could. And maybe one day you feel really good and that load or that whatever I kind of did program for you may not even give you a challenge and you're not even providing a stimulus for you. But this auto-regulation is, again, that educational approach of, hey, if I feel really good, I'm going to up that intensity via load. Or if I'm not feeling very good, I'm going to decrease that intensity via load to, again, provide a novel stimulus for who I am and what I'm about right now. But what is your opinion of auto-regulation via either RPE, RIR, because I know you have very extensive research on that. And what is your opinion of, I think, the other end of the spectrum, which is more objective in nature with gym wear and velocity-based training? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to what equipment you have available. You know, um, like as much as I think it is great, like I'd rather have someone say it was a two RIR and have it actually be a two RIR than maybe a one or a three, you know, like... And that, that, that's very, uh, that's a very reasonable thing that could happen. You might be off by a rep. If even if you're a trained lifter, um, especially if you're doing higher rep sets, um, this isn't bad, but if you're using a velocity tracker, you're going to know with a little better precision because it's actually tracking the velocity, assuming you're using maximal concentric velocity intent. So, um, I basically see RIR as just the, uh, your best guess. It's essentially the same thing as VBT. Uh, and VBT velocity-based training, uh, is great, but there's a barrier to entry that right now is only down to about $300, you know, three, 400, if you're getting like the rep one, um, there's some apps that are like $10, but the yeah, the power lift, yeah, the power lift trainer app that has actually been shown to be reliable in a study. But then again, I do wonder if researchers checking how to use this app 
are like making sure that the phone is set up the right way, knowing everything they know about it. Is that going to be as accurate as in the hands of the average trainer or the average person using it? Um, I would guess not. Um, so yeah. And, and I've also, I also would question that because some of the reliability of other app-based programs that use uh, video to track velocity aren't great. So like um, Canovia and IronPath, those are apps that have been found to not be super reliable or valid compared to like actual 3D motion tracking. So I, I do question that, uh, even though there is the, the research to back it in some cases. So in general, I would say, look, if you want to do velocity-based training, you probably actually want to get an LPT, linear position transducer. Uh, like the Rep One, which is I think the the most affordable uh, validated commercial one, um, used to be from the Squats and Science crew and a different title. Uh, the I'm forgetting the title of it, but anyway, I think it's called Rep One now. Um, and uh, yeah, that's like 300 to 400 USD, which is great. I mean, back in the day, it used to be uh, you get a Tendo, which looks like the the freaking thing from Ghostbusters, which which captures ghosts and made which in the looks 80s. Really and- cool. It's amazing. Like if you love 80 sci-fi movies, you will feel like you're, <laughs> you're, you're in it. Um, and, but that costs like $1,500. Or if you get a gym aware, which is a, like a Bluetooth hookup to a smartphone, which I have, that's uh, like two to three grand uh, Australian, which is around $1,500 to $2,000 USD. And you got to ship it from, from Australia if you're in the States. So anyway, it, there, there's a pretty big barrier to entry. So most of the time it's only professional coaches who are getting that or labs. So velocity is great, um, but two things. One, it primarily is used to auto-regulate load, um, not other variables. And auto-regulation is a much broader approach to simply understanding uh, that, like you said, you're not the same person you were two months ago as you are now. Hopefully you've adapted. Maybe you've detrained. Um, Maybe you were injured. Um, And maybe you just didn't sleep as well tonight or you're distracted or or what have you. So your performance varies on a day-to-day basis. Um, There was actually a recent study came out that questioned the idea of our ability to even gauge who is a high or a non-responder. So they took a group of people, trained them, categorized them into quartiles, I believe, uh, top responders, lowest responders, and then two groups in the middle, and then repeated the training protocol after a washout period And the same people were not the same people again. So the people who are high responders were not high responders the second time. People who are low responders were not low responders. There was zero relationship between uh, high responders in the first phase and high responders in the second phase, non-responders and non-responders. So this is not to say that high responders and low responders don't exist. It's just to say that you might be a high responder to this program right now, but you might be a low responder to another program at that point. And we've all experienced that. Like, oh, I got great gains on this. And then your buddy does it. And like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't progress at all, you know? So we don't have the tools, again, available to the average person to be able to diagnose why that might be. Um, we aren't going to be able to put uh, an EMG on you, chuck you in a metabolic chamber, uh, track velocity all the time, and get a constant read of your testosterone cortisol ratio. Um, and, and get like functional MRI to see where you're at mentally during all your sets and then be like, yep, this is the program for you. And by the way, for the record, even if you did all that, I don't think it would actually work. Um, so the only option really is to be reactive to some degree, to assess what's going on and change it. It's to have agility. And that agility um, doesn't mesh well with some of the more traditional approaches we have for training. Like, hey, here's a program. 
run it. Uh, and then we're going to test your maxes at the end. And then we're going to use those to then run the next eight week program. I'll see you every two months. Um, so I think, I think whatever system you use, so long it has, it has the ability to change based on the realities of uh, what's going on for the person, um, then you're basically auto-regulated. And the part of, of auto-regulation that is auto refers to also empowering the athlete or giving them tools to make their own changes, which is really useful for, let's say you're a team sport SNC, you got 30 people you're, you're taking care of for the next hour and a half. If they understand how to gauge RIR or if um, they all have like there's velocity trackers at five different squat racks or what have you, and they know what their own velocity profiles are and what zones they should be training in, then you don't have to be the one manipulating all the X's and O's. It's a very different proposition than when you're doing, say, online coaching one on one with people um, uh, that that's that then, then you can kind of keep your hand on the tiller. But again, with an online coach, you're not seeing them when they're trained, you're, you're getting a after action report, like once a week of here's how Tuesday went and it's Friday, you know? So you want them to have those tools that they could bring into the gym and learn more and more over time. Um, so auto-regulation can include things like a flexible template. Hey, we have uh, these, these three days that we want to get done this week and do them on the days when you have time, energy, you have to focus and you give them some other constraints. Don't do them back to back days. But beyond that, you can do them when, when you're ready based on your schedule. Um, or maybe that doesn't work for someone that's a little too much flexibility and you just use RPE. Uh, you can also give, say, a power lifter um, accessories that are auto-regulated if they have sufficient experience. We've got data on auto-regulated exercise selection now showing enhanced hypertrophy and strength and trained individuals when they're given a little more power to actually choose which movements they want to do uh, for a given body part. So you can have someone follow you know, a pre-prescribed plan on the squat, bench, and deadlift. But for their accessories, you go, hey, do a row of choice here or do a lat pull-down or a row, depending on how fresh your back is. Or, hey, you know, we can do uh, dumbbell split squats or you can do a squat variation depending on how you feel or what have you or how recovered you are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can do other things that aren't even published in the literature, like taking deloads on a reactive basis. You have someone complete, you know, a little post-block questionnaire um, or you can, you can take the average of a bunch of different session RPEs, which are done after the whole session and describe the difficulty of the entire session. And if they're over some limit, then you give them a deload. If they're under it, we're good to go into the next mesocycle. Either one of those, are, those are things I do in, in, in my programming as well. So really it's anything that allows you to manipulate the variables of periodization, which again, the definition is simply manipulating variables to enhance performance and avoid overtraining that allows you to manipulate them in, in more or less real time or the closest thing you can get to that. Because the closer you get to being able to make adjustments based upon the reality in front of you, the more closely you're going to be able to match the training stress and the fatigue with the reality of the person so that they can keep making progress and avoid overtraining, which is the whole goal. So you already kind of touched base on it, but it seems like you're a deload as needed via biofeedback from yourself or the client, correct? Yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah. So I tend to, so to give you an insight into what I have, uh, you know, in front of me when I'm looking at a spreadsheet and when, when a client reports into me, I've got the RPEs reported for each one of their lifts. So I know how close to failure they felt they were. I've got videos of their heaviest lifts from the week. So I can see if there's a potential disparity there. Um, I've also got a session RPE so for each one. And I have a number in my head of how hard I thought the session should have been for them. So I can see if they're, you know, if they repeat a very similar session week to week, and it's climbing or going down. And that also tells me about the, the stress of their overall life in the last week and the overall uh, microcycle. 
If the same session's getting harder, that means they're they're accumulating fatigue, right? This is more than they can consistently do without eventually needing a deload or a break or, or breaking. Um, likewise, if the fatigue's going down, then I know that it's not sufficient to accumulate fatigue and I may or may not see performance going up and that could tell me something. So I've also got estimated one RMs. So I've got a performance metric if we're talking about a power lifter. So I've got either top singles or really anything that's less than the equivalent of a five RM to estimate their one RM. That could be a, uh, a double at eight RPE, right? That's equivalent to someone's uh, four RM, right? So I can estimate a one RM from that. Um, so I've got these performance metrics, session RPE, individual RPEs, video lifts, um, and then I've also got at the end of the block, I asked them a, a number of yes or no questions that are uh, most common in the overtraining uh, literature. So things like, was your sleep quality uh, better or worse than normal? Is your motivation to train better or worse than normal? Is your aches and pains better or worse than normal? Um, a couple others that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. Um, but basically, if they say yes to two or more of those five questions, um, and I know I didn't say five, but I just can't remember them off the top of my head, uh, then I normally go, yep, let's run a deload. And then I have another kind of rule that if we run three mesocycles in a row and you are improving performance and like, they're not just like really, really low session RPEs, but those after action, like post block reports are like, no, I'm fine. I pretty much just run a deload no matter what, just because better safe than sorry. But that's not, there's no, that's not in a textbook. That's just kind of what I do. So, yeah. You know, I think, again, there's, like you said, there's no really right or wrong because I've, I've met individuals like every five, six weeks, it's, it's deload. I'd rather just kind of play safe than, and it's very similar to what you're saying. Every three blocks, if we're getting through and you're good, I don't care. Let's just do it just to kind of be safe on the safe side. Um, but I, I, you know, in regards to your other questionnaire, what is, I guess, the first thing that you would, I guess, address? You know, you said sleep, maybe just the excitement of, uh, of training. Um, something that I always look at is, you know, maybe it's the exercise selection. And we, we had that, that uh, study come out of University of Tampa. I've, I've, that's got me a lot of power. Okay, maybe, you know, we have a pick two, three as max, maybe four exercises that we really need to stick to. But maybe, hey, every two to three weeks, we manipulate those accessories that, hey, we give you that autonomy to kind of self-select. Um, maybe is there a specific movie that you're kind of manipulating or is it again, nutrition, sleep, other exterior factors that you're kind of considering? Yeah, man, that's a great question. And I, and I pulled up my, uh, my, my spreadsheet. So I actually remember all the questions and I almost got them all. It's dreading the gym. Yes or no sleep worse than normal. Yes or no. Are your loads decreasing? Yes or no. Um, even though I have the estimated one RMs, that's also good to get their perspective. Is your stress worse than normal? And then your eggs and pains worse than normal. So while I do trigger a deload, if they've got a yes to like two or more of those, typically, um, it's also a conversation starter. It's not just have a deload. I'm not going to ask anything else. Um, it is then go, okay, well, if you are dreading the gym and your sleep is worse than normal, what's going on? And it may just be, yeah, I've got really jacked up after that block. It was really hard. I did it. I'm glad I progressed, but I barely survived it. I, I needed, needed a week off. Um, or it could be the block was what, whatever, but I just got divorced or COVID has been wrecking my life or what have you. So I think it is, it, or, or my nutrition's been off. Like you said, I've been traveling and I've had to eat out every single meal, you know, for the past couple uh, weeks. And all I've had is continental breakfast at, at hotels in, in the morning or something like that. So I think um, the, the information that you get on, on some of these metrics should be conversation starters rather than the only indication of what you should do. If RPEs are all climbing up all of a sudden, same thing. Well, what's going on? I'm not sleeping, you know? Uh, so 
th these are all opportunities for you to then do more subjective interaction with your client. So while I mention all those things I get, I get the video, I get the post block assessment, I'm getting the, the session RPEs, I'm getting the, the RPEs, estimated one RMs, that's great. But I also get a video from the client telling me about the past week, every report. And if they can't record the video, they type it up, just depending on, you know, they may not have the, the ability to upload or just not their preference. But I like to see their face and hear them talk about the past week. And sometimes I'll also jump on, on Skype with them on a semi-regular basis as well. So we can have those conversations. So that subjective information, uh, the report of the week, um, it doesn't always match up with what you see in, in the objective numbers. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, and there is actually an art to looking at a, like a, a client check-in. So sometimes what I'll do is I will just look at the numbers and not watch the video or read the report and just get an idea of, okay, here's what I'm seeing. Here's objectively what I think I should do. And then I listen to them and I go, okay, where are they at? How do they see it? And that can, that's really good instead of just kind of reacting to just how they're, how they're feeling first. Cause sometimes I may be really downtrodden and they need someone to be a bit of a cheerleader. Like, Hey, this is a really tough block. You're rough, but actually your estimated one RM on bench went up in that fourth week. You know, it wasn't just all stagnant or, you know, despite the fact that you felt like trash, you actually completed all the volume and hit some target loads that are, that are about the same. So I think with all this fatigue, once we deload, whoo, we're going to see some PRs or whatever, you know? So um, that, in a way you're like anchoring them in, in a say that, Hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Absolutely. Um, or, or, I mean, sometimes it's just as simple as certain things are just not going to be in your metrics. Um, someone's personal life could be really going through a tough spot and not that you need to necessarily do anything about that or fix it as a trainer, but being someone who listens, reflects, empathizes with them, um, and then makes the necessary adjustments so that you're giving them a program that is appropriate for the level of life stress they have is really important. Um, and that also requires a lot of upfront work. This is off the top of, of auto regulation, but if you have this kind of approach of, look, I'm, I'm the macros and estimated one RM guy, and that's what I do um, and nothing else, then your clients won't feel it is appropriate for bring it up to you when they're, they're going through a lot of life stress. Because what does that have to do with my training? The reality is a lot. We have a ton of data. Uh, there, there's studies by uh, Bartholomew that show the more li uh, negative life stress events that someone reports the lower their strength gains will be. Uh, we have data showing that uh, college collegiate athletes during exams are more likely to be injured. So these are things that um, absolutely, even though they're outside of the gym and outside of the kitchen, will affect the effectiveness of what you do inside the gym and inside the kitchen. So you have to set up the rapport with your clients such that they know that while it's not necessarily your domain to modify, it is something that will affect the domains that you do modify. Um, so I think that, that that's a very important piece as well. Not, it's funny. That's my bag. I keep doing it to you, Chris, but it's funny. Now we've He's had, like, why am I here? Why am I here? Well, <laughs> <laughs> we've now had Dr. John Kiley. We've had Dr. Jonathan Weekly. We've had um, Buckner. We've had Campbell. And now the, the one and only time traveler, Dr. Eric Helms saying, Build a freaking rapport with your athletes. Don't just be that objective guy. And I try to stress this to my clients is, you know, that subjective information, that word document that you fill out is probably the more important thing. And I like very similar how you do. I, I like to see the objective stuff. Okay. Hey, this is how it's trending. This is what I'm assuming should be happening with their, in their head and trying to get into in 
be my be in their shoes. But sometimes that doesn't always align. I think, as you said, that's a form of auto regulation in itself for us to manipulate this, these variables on a weekly, daily basis. So we're giving them an optimal program and that is sustainable, maintainable. So they're in this game for a long term. And I always try to phrase that, as you said, what is an average span of a, a bodybuilder usually? And they're like, I don't know. Well, usually I think on average I read is about two to three years. And it might be even less than that. It's because they go that all or nothing. They do these drastic changes and they just burn out. And it's like, now I have an eating disorder. If not, if I don't have one, you're probably going to get one. Um, and that's just not how you want this. You want this to be a part of your lifestyle and you don't want it to consume your lifestyle. So Dr. Helms, we want to be courteous to your time. I know we didn't get to a lot of our questions, but all that means is that I get to annoy you and email you again and say, hey, you got to be back on for part two. Um, but for our listeners, if you don't mind, could you go ahead and tell us where they can find you? More importantly, those two books that you have wrote and even updated multiple times, where they can find those and read those. Um, and I will just shut up now because I've kind of blocked out Chris. Chris, Adam, I just want to say honor to be on. I'd be more than happy to be back and we can, we can tap into all those other topics. Um, but yeah, you can find me at uh, 3dmusclejourney.com. That's the number three, the letter D followed by musclejourney.com. That is the, uh, the company that I started with my colleagues, Jeff Alberts, Alberto Nunez, Brad Loomis, and uh, Andrea Valdez. And we also have our specialists. Uh, we have our, our doctor of physical therapy, uh, Nick Licamelli, we have our licensed clinical counselor, Amanda Rizzo, and our registered dietitian, Steve Taylor. And all together, what we do is we support the drug-free lifting community with an emphasis on uh, natural bodybuilding and powerlifting. So it's a great resource for anyone who is a recreational or competitive lifter. Um, so you can check it out there. It's a one-stop shop. It has links to the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books, which you mentioned, uh, that are in their second edition um, that I wrote with uh, Andrea and also my colleague, Andy Morgan. Um, that have literally everything that, that, that I've ever thought about in terms of training and nutrition in those two books. Uh, there's also links to monthly applications in strength sport where myself, Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdos, uh, and Eric Trexler review on a monthly basis, the most relevant stuff for strength and physique development. And uh, outside of that, if you want to follow my more daily content where I post about being on podcasts like this, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ on Instagram. Well, this is awkward because this is uh, hi guys. I'm Chris. You haven't heard me really, <laughs> but no, <laughs> I appreciate it. Dr. Helms. Uh, if you guys haven't checked out that the strength pyramid book, I highly recommend it. It's something that, like he said, if it's something he's thought about that could help you, it's in that book. And it's one of those books that I'll reference if I just want more clarity. Uh, so I appreciate that book. Hopefully some of our followers will go ahead and go snag that book. It's definitely worth it, especially if you coach, you, you should definitely have it. Um, but with that being said, thank you for coming. We appreciate your time. Uh, and hopefully we'll have you back for a part two. Thank you, gentlemen. Yes, sir. That's all the smoke. <laughs>